So obviously you've been on, you have like a lot of experience with podcasts and audio and visual, but I'm just going to tell you how we, <laughs> I don't think I do, but you do. <laughs> you do. You do. <laughs> you've been on so many things. <laughs> you, you have a Oh, that's like the humble brag of ages. He's like, oh, really? Have I done all those things? I mean, I'm only 23. I'll tell you how we do it. At October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage. Yeah. Well, for a while, we were getting right in. We were just like jumping into the interview. Everything's changing so much in this show. It's such a trip. Like That's good, right? Because it's you're it's growing. We're really growing. Like yes. just outside. You guys have uploaded so many episodes so far. It's so impressive. Thank you. Yeah. It's this like, wow, a- they got to work. They're busy. Good. How do you feel about the number 41? I mean, today's episode is 41. Darren Aronofsky. Oh. Darren Aronofsky? No, Derek Novitsky. Darren Aronofsky. Is he coming on the show? Dirk who? Novitsky. Novitsky? You think one, you think Nada. I know? Oh, the who Israeli the guy f- that plays in America? No, no, I think it's German. Just a random NBA player. Of course, there's a player whose number is forty-one. This is like the morning show. I I feel like this is like a morning show now. I mean, you're only twenty-three. Angel face. Only twenty-three. Thirty-eight. I remember driving. I to still have it. I'm still in. I'm still a young Dirk woman. Dirk Nowitzki. If how many of our listeners, show of hands, know who Dirk Nowitzki was? No idea who that is. I I I'm gonna go with. I had no do idea. Do you like who that sports? Was. No. So then, why do you know who number forty-one is? <laughs> <laughs> do you like- Today's episode is brought to us by. Zahav Jewelry with 1L. You are listening to October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage. We didn't even explain the thing that I was starting to explain. Yeah, we got distracted. (laughs) I do want to explain it. Listeners, you know, we said that season two started at episode 32 and we started inviting guests on for this like once a week format. Well, today, I think I think we can formally announce I'm doing it. Today we're starting season three, and it's a little bit different. Dor, we're going to explain how it's different by way of me passing you the following. And I'm passing to Dor an object. Dor, how many how many pieces of paper do you think are in your hand right now? One. One piece of paper? One. Just one. That's right, folks. Remember when Dor challenged me to bring in one piece of paper and one piece of paper alone with me as my talking points, notes set up instead of 40 pages, 20 pages, handwritten pages, pieces of newspaper, clippings, etc. One piece of paper. So that's one nail in the season three starting. The other one is we're kind of bringing back a little bit of the season one vibe, just a smidge, just a little bit. It was crazy back then. And we, you know, we don't want to go full on season one again, because that was like a little too much and unsustainable, but we kind of want to bring it back a bit. And we're still going to have guests here, which is really exciting. And Blake Flayton is here, not only in episode 41, but episode one of season three. Hi, welcome, Blake. Congratulations. You guys are putting a lot of emphasis on like numbers. And as someone who's really <laughs> not good at math, I'm, I'm a little lost. 41, season one, season three. Mm-hmm. I'm a little lost. Well, the the show started. We met next door. 
And it was on October 7th. And then we started recording that night and it was like historical record. You started and, recording the night of October 7th? Yeah. Oy vavoy. Oy vavoy. I don't even remember what I was doing. I was probably, I don't know, dissociating on the couch, just feeling all the feels. And I remained like that for about three weeks. And really eat or sleep or talk to anyone. Did you imbibe any substances? Is that okay I to sure ask? I sure did. I sure did. I also... Substances. Mm. That was very important to my health, health and happiness as well, or quote unquote happiness. On that particular day, I drank a lot of Arak and then Uzo. Wow. Yeah. How is your tummy? Honestly, like I, I really also detached in a way. It sounds weird. Like, it's just like, I was beyond, I was beyond sleeping. I was beyond feeling. I was like numb, but also really like jumped into life and then nauseous and then eating and then not eating and somehow losing like all all over the place. I don't even. The guardrails of like what it means to be a normal functioning person that we usually have or we're supposed to have just completely went away. Like I was waking up at random times. I was doing work at 3 a.m. and then sleeping till 4 p.m. Like there was no expectations of me or really anybody. And I still feel like we're kind of in that space Um, in terms of like the journalism, writing, Israel, talking about world. (laughs) I don't know how to explain that better. People are recognizing other people's humanity and recognizing that people are kind of doing their own thing still because we're all traumatized and we're all doing the best that we can. That's the only thing we can do. So the format's different, guys. It's October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage, Season 3, Episode 1, or Episode 41, but who's counting? (laughs) February 20th, it's the 137th day of the war, and joining us today is Blake Flayton. He's a writer, student, and activist living in Tel Aviv. He made Aliyah from New York City a year and a half ago and has spent his time in Israel so far learning Hebrew, going to protests against the Netanyahu government and defending Zionism online and in his writing. He co-hosts the We Should All Be Zionist podcast with Dr. Anat Wilf, a former member of Knesset from the Labor Party and author of The War of Return. Blake has bylines in the New York Times, Haaretz, Tablet Magazine, Fathom Journal, and more in addition to his Substack blog, Bourgeois Nationalist. Blake is currently pursuing a master's degree in Middle Eastern religion and politics at Bar-Ilan University. Welcome, Blake. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, really. I find you to be one of the, hmm, this is probably not how you use this word, but like punchier writers. Like you have this brand of snark. I really enjoy these like front-facing reels that you've been doing lately, in addition to all of your online work, which I've, I think I've started following you in 2021 during the conflict. Oh, wow. It's so funny. Everyone calls my writing snarky. You're not the first person to call it snarky or people say they like it because it has attitude. And it's not even when I'm trying to be like a bitchy gay. It's when I'm literally just writing about what I think about something and someone will get back to me and say, ooh, I love that like cold-blooded takedown. And I said, it wasn't intentional, but thank you. Well, I, I'll say this. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's cold-blooded. I think that there's a lot of heart behind what you do. You well, really, thank you. there's a lot of thoughtfulness. What I love about your reels also is that 
we're kind of seeing what a masterful editor you are in, in addition to, you know, <laughs> writing. I really like That's it. That's the first time anybody said that. There's like these zoom-ins suddenly of his face and there's lots of like references to stuff and backed up by a, a depth of knowledge about this stuff. Like, I'm just like, whoa, I thought I was reading a good amount, but, you know, hats off. It It's really sitting on a lot of research. I walk away from a lot of your reels, your, your content online, learning things, like things that I'm just like, whoa, 19th century, like shit, that, that's super relevant to today. And maybe let's start by talking about like your origin story. Like, what were you studying? How did, how did you end up here? Like what, who are you, Blake? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I would love to, to explain a little bit about myself. Uh, so hi, <laughs> hi. long time listener, first time caller. Uh, I am Blake. I am from Artsotabrit, America, the United States. Uh, and like you mentioned, I made Aliyah a year and a half ago. And I like to say that if someone had told me three years ago, or maybe even two and a half, that I would be making Aliyah to Israel, that I would be an Oleh Hadash living in Tel Aviv, I would have called that person crazy, asked them, what are they smoking? And then, you know, asked if I could have some because that was a completely batshit proposal. Uh, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a progressive liberal firebrand activist in America. That's what I thought my future was. I wanted to be involved in exclusively American politics, which is why I chose to go to George Washington University in DC. My freshman dorm room was just two or three blocks away from the White House, which I thought was very exciting. And of course, I got involved in all these different organizations and student groups and activities around the city. And I worked on Capitol Hill for my congressman. And I was spending every weekend at a protest. And I was really wanting, you know, internships and jobs and that would make a name for myself in that space. And then the strangest things kept happening to me, which is that every time I put myself in these spaces, I would hear just the most insensitive and jarring statements about Israel or quote unquote Israel, because they never really were about Israel or the Middle East or the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians or the history of Israel. Not that I knew anything of the sort at the time. It took a very long time to educate myself uh, when I started realizing that this was a problem. But at the time, I already knew that something wasn't right, that these comments felt below the belt and they felt sometimes personal, as in directed at me because people knew that I was Jewish. And even knowing nothing about the conflict, I knew that they didn't constitute political criticism of a nation state. So what do I mean by that? There are several examples. Uh, in June of 2019, there was an LGBT pride march in Washington, D.C. that went out of its way to ban the Megan David pride flag, which I had in my dorm room and which I had been taking to various pride events throughout the, the summer because it was a quote unquote nationalist symbol. You know, the Star of David on the rainbow flag. Of course, they, the organizers of the rally didn't make any mention to ban any other nationalist symbol. So you could have hypothetically walked into that march with any flag from any nation except this one that vaguely looked like the Israeli flag. Uh, and the organizers of the rally actually formed like a physical barricade to prevent all these Jewish women 
who had showed up with their Megan David pride flags wanting to participate. And that was a huge wake up call for me. There was an incident where there was a, a Snapchat video that was taken in my dorm building that was released to the student body of these two kids walking back from a party. And you can tell they're a little drunk. And one of them behind the camera asks the girl, what are we going to do to Israel? And she says, we're going to bomb Israel, you Jewish pieces of shit. And uh, of course, she tried to pass it off on her Instagram later as, you know, being critical of Zionism and, and Israel. Uh, there was a march uh, slash rally on my campus for a $15 minimum wage for the custodial workers who worked at GW. And I was in my Marx era. So I was very excited to show up to this rally and boo the names of campus executives and talk about, you know, how everyone who lives in DC should be able to afford to live in DC. And for some reason, the rally, when they invited students from Students for Justice in Palestine to take the mic, turned into a anti-occupation, anti-Israel rally, because apparently the oppression of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza had everything to do with janitors at GW not being paid a living wage. There was the Tree of Life massacre, and that really affected me. It was one of the first times I had really contemplated being Jewish. And I remember waking up crying and later on that afternoon telling one of my roommates that I wanted to hang an Israeli flag in my dorm room. And he sort of looked at me and scoffed and said, Ugh, well, can you just make sure it's small? So, you know, like a lot of things that were off kilter, that didn't sit right, that I knew weren't concerning Israel. I went to this uh, meeting for the Democratic Socialists of America. And like one of the first things they said was that we don't tolerate Zionism here or Zionists here because Zionism is a transnational project, which immediately without knowing a lot about anti-Semitism made me think of like a global conspiracy of protocols. So again, these things added up. These things made me very confused. And I started reading about the good old Jewish question and that opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of what I was seeing in front of me from people who I had always considered my comrades, people who I wanted to work with, I wanted to be friends with, people who worked in the space that I really wanted to excel in, they were falling prey to this system of beliefs, this ideology that has plagued humankind for thousands of years. And some of them even were aware of it and didn't care. I'm so sorry that you endured and lived through those experiences. And I'm really grateful to you for being so open about that and sharing it with our listeners today. I know that when I like reflect back on times in my life that were so memorable because of how jarring they were, um, it, it like stirs that emotion. So I'm really grateful to you for opening and sharing about those things. Yeah, I mean, so basically all of this climaxed in an op-ed that I wrote that I was lucky enough to get published in the New York Times about the problem of anti-Semitism on college campuses from a progressive, from the poster child. Like I think the tagline was a gay pro-choice environmentalist because I was involved in all of those spaces. And it was the number one trending opinion piece in the New York Times for I think the better part of like a week and a half. And it completely changed my life in two ways. One, because I got in touch or I was reached out to by 
thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, it was completely overwhelming, thousands of young people from across the country and the world, uh, including Israelis, asking about my experience, telling me about their experiences, wanting to learn more, their parents and random housewives and businessmen and anybody who you can think of who read this piece wanted to speak to me about it. And obviously I couldn't talk to anybody or everybody rather. But uh, the second thing is, is that it confirmed all of the suspicions that I had in writing that piece where I said that anti-Semitism is a problem on the left and in progressive spaces, because there had been many scandals at my university before concerning different minority groups of, you know, LGBT students feeling aggrieved, black students feeling aggrieved, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the administration would always publish statements and there would be a town hall and there would be professors talking about it in class. When I published that piece, the New York Times, so it wasn't just a random magazine, one faculty member reached out to me who wasn't even my professor. And I think we had about a 15 minute conversation in his office and that was it. And I lost all of my friends, the majority of my friends, some of them, some of them are half and half, I'd say even still today. I lost a whole lot of my peers that I had met in the progressive space, uh, in the political action space. And I felt this overwhelming sense of isolation and loneliness. And like I had done something really wrong by talking about my experience as a Jew. And the only thing that got me through it was realizing the double standard and realizing how differently this community takes accusations of racism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, you name it, over a very real and buttressed with evidence account of anti-Semitism. And that made me realize that I had been correct in describing this problem. And it was still hard. It still is hard, which is obviously why I'm you know, still in this space and still an advocate for Zionism online because I see the double standard. I see the hypocrisy, but it was essential in informing who I am today. So many people since October 7th have been kind of waking up to that reality or being confronted with a reality that they really wanted to just reject. And you experienced that so many years ago gave you a head start in a sense. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners as they grapple with this feeling, possibly for the first time in their lives, and that sense of isolation and separation from friends, if, if there's anything that you've learned that you'd like to share. I would just have to say that you're not alone. You are 100% mamash not alone. This conundrum of being Jewish in the modern world. Uh, a lot of people have written about it. A lot of people speak about it. Um, a lot of dead people have uh, dedicated their lives to it. And educating yourself, reading, listening, watching, asking questions, going on internet deep dives at 3 a.m. These are very important things that a Jew who feels alone or isolated should be doing because there is a treasure trove of knowledge and experience and interpretation out there that can really guide you and really help you. And don't be afraid to explore this part of yourself, I would say, because who knows, you might look around and find that it really excites you. And you might realize that 
you are very connected to your Jewish identity and it can inform your life in the future. I love that. Like it's, it's like you, you plant the seeds and you don't know what kind of forest is going to grow. Like it could lead to new, new friendships. I mean, all those relationships ended and you ended up leaving the States, but look at your life here now. It's like a year and a half. You know, I also see you outside of this podcast, disclose, like, what is that? Disclaimer, disclosure, whatever. We met at the cafe in the South Tel Aviv. neighborhood. Have great canals. Have you tried their canals? No, is I don't think that they have particularly good food. This is not a call out post to cafe. You haven't tried the canal though. How can you even? You know the pastry there. They have some excellent. I don't pastry. go there for the food or coffee. I go there because it's like this amazing like bohemian community of Tel Avivis who like sit and write and it's the same people every day. It's really a micro neighborhood. Like I was Maybe talking- we should not even talk about it on air. I don't want it to get more packed as oh, it yeah. is. It's really difficult to find it. So we're going to like redact it. Okay. You're going to bleep, bleep <laughs> out the name of the cafe, right? Oh yeah. That'd be good to bleep it out. That'd be funny too. Oh, there are so many things I want to get into with you, Blake, but you know, I'm not going to eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'm going to go with what's staring me right in the face, which is your outfit today. You're wearing a crime minister t-shirt. Oh yeah, I am. I know you put a lot of intention into everything you do. So <laughs> I sense that you want to talk about maybe your involvement in the protest movement. Sure. I mean, we're, I, it is kind of jumping ahead because listen, I mean, my decision to make Aliyah, I think relates to my activity in the protest movement in Israel quite a bit. And it relates to my work in the Jewish space quite a bit. You know, a lot of people assume if they know anything about me or my, as you put it, quote unquote, origin story, they assume that I made Aliyah to Israel because I realized that anti-Semitism was a problem in the spaces in which I had always been comfortable. And I realized that liberals expressed a great deal of hypocrisy. And that is ultimately scarier than right-wing reactionary people hating Jews because we all know that they're going to hate Jews. So people assume that it's sort of like this Herzlian moment of aha, where emancipation has failed. The solution to the Jewish question needs to be over there because Europe can't live up to the ideals that it espouses. That is what people assume. That's what I assumed. But that's not quite true because while I did experience anti-Semitism and while that shocked me into taking my Jewish identity seriously and wanting to have a career talking about Jewish issues, um, it also is about my politics and about how I feel and began to feel as I was beginning to write about Jewish issues in America that I was not really part of the Jewish conversation in America because I am not observant in the least. I grew up in a household where, you know, I was bar mitzvah, I went to Hebrew school, but it was a very secular household. We weren't doing any any prayers. I think we, we went to synagogue twice a year for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And my sister and I were raised to be very free-thinking, modern people. And so by the time I was 12, I branded myself an atheist and still use that brand and still use that label. But then I would, you know, walk around Central Park on Saturdays and see 
the young people, the young men in Kippot and the young women, you know, on the Shidduch land where they all try to meet each other and marry. And I would feel jealous because I didn't have that connection to a Jewish identity without anti-Semitism. I could write and talk about anti-Semitism on college campuses and about Zionism and why it's important for young Jews to reclaim that label, but I couldn't feel Jewish in that way. And then I realized that, like I said before in my previous answer, there is no problem under the sun. There's no question on the Jewish condition under the sun that hasn't been wrestled with before and that another Jew in history hasn't eloquently written about and spoken about. And I realized that Zionism was a movement for secular Jews. It was a movement for secular Jews to feel Jewish. Jewish nationalism offered this third way between assimilation into their host society, their diasporic society, and religious observance. It offered a way to contribute to the Jewish story and to contribute to the Jewish future, even while doing something as heretical as, I don't know, kissing a boy or texting on Shabbat or eating on Yom Kippur. By just being in Israel, by being fearful over your friends who are going to the army, by learning Hebrew, and by bitching about the lack of public transportation on Shabbat, you are living a 100% Jewish life and contributing to the Jewish people and our story. And that was a very thrilling observation and a very thrilling idea for me. And I realized in that moment that I had to make Aliyah because the secular Israelis are my people. Those are the only Jews who I have ever felt close to. Those are the only Jews who I feel like honor and respect my interpretation of Judaism. And so I moved to Israel, obviously. And then six weeks later, we had an election and the most right-wing government in Israel's history and also the most religious government in Israel's history took power. And I was appalled and shocked for many reasons, which we can go into later. But to make a long story short, going to the protests to Kaplan, or they started at Habima and then going to Kaplan and later blocking the Ayalon Highway, that, you know, those protests that were sparked after the government was elected and they revealed their plans for judicial reform, which by the way, were always, judicial reform has always been just a smokescreen for the religious right, not having a check on their power grab and being able to do whatever they want. And that was very obvious to everyone who was involved in the conversation, either left or right. I wrote this piece called, I go to Shul on Kaplan Street because every Saturday I found myself crying and weeping at this like sight of all of these Israeli flags coupled with all these rainbow flags. And, you know, Ben-Gurion's Declaration of Independence projected on the screen that's saying, you know, we want a state that follows the charter of the United Nations that values equality and pluralism. And these chants for democratia, for democracy, and for liberalism, uh, and you know, which is a call out of the Israeli police against the reactionary forces in our society. It was the first time I had felt Jewish and like, oh my God, these are my people. And I feel a part of this, this story really intrinsically and really powerfully. Um, and I've obviously kept up in the, uh, protest movement ever since, because I do believe that what happened in 2023 in reaction to judicial reform was the secular uprising in Israel. And I do believe that Zionism is a 
is a fundamentally secular Jewish creation and that it's for secular Jews and that we need to fight for it to remain this, this liberal democratic haven where Jewish law and uh, common law, let's say, are kept separate. Today on Solid Gold, joining us is Blake Flayton. What role does like wearing jewelry have for you in your life? You wear a Star of David necklace. Yeah, so I've worn a Star of David necklace ever since I saw the movie Call Me By Your Name my senior year of high school because uh, Timothy Chalamet's character, Elio, uh, wears one throughout the movie. And I felt very represented by that character. It was like the first time in a movie that I had seen someone who looked, acted, and was like me. Uh, And so I started wearing a Star of David then. And then I had no idea how important Judaism would become to me like two years later uh, when I got to college. But yeah, that's where it started. And I also feel like jewelry is... It's definitely how I express myself. I would feel naked. I always wear like the dangly earrings when I have an outfit that goes with them. And yeah, they're definitely how I express myself. I also like going into a stage of like going into a space where it's like very Israel Hasbarai, which is more often than not filled with conservatives. And I like going in with funky feminine jewelry because it throws people off their guard. And it says, I have just as right to be here as you do but I have very different opinions and uh, we owe it to our audience to give them those differing opinions. I love wearing jewelry too, like expressing myself and there's really nothing better than jewelry that's been made lovingly with solid gold and a family business from my lovely hometown of New York City. So visit zafjewelry.com for gold body jewelry. And if you don't have piercings, that's okay too. Really, no piercings, no problem. Use discount code DOR24, that's D-O-R 24, for an additional 35% off your entire order. They'll even throw in a free pair of 14 karat solid gold earrings in your first order. Mm. Guys, don't forget to breathe. Did you read the Herzl biography by Amos Ceylon? Of course, it's my favorite book. How wild is that book? That book, I remember reading it for the first time in college when I had to think about these issues for the first time. And it snatched my wig completely off. 10 feet behind me. Did you love finding out that he was into Wagner and that he actually wasn't that tall? For me, that was like the craziest revelation in the book. I mean, he had to wear a huge big old hat to look very regal and tall and majestic. But also the fact that he was into Wagner, I mean, it just makes his story better and more interesting and more almost like Passover-like. I mean, here was the Prince of Egypt. He was the model of European assimilationism. He was literally writing Der Judenstadt, or I think he had finished writing Der Judenstadt when the chief rabbi of Vienna came to his house and he had the Christmas tree. Oh my God, that scene in the book? Yeah. I was like, whoa. He's like the everyman hero, tragic hero kind of 
He has this rich backstory. The guy was like a fleur de tan. Yes. Yes. He, he was writing all of that fluff. And yeah, I mean. He wanted to be a playwright. What What kind? This is like the ultimate playwright. He this could is, have only been a playwright, by the way. The spiritual founder of the Jewish state. What did he say? Artists will see that my dreams are not so crazy, but there are a few such artists. It could have only been an artist slash playwright who could have done such a thing as create the modern state of Israel. Like he was very aware of the dramatic prose of his life and how that would contribute to the mythology of the Jews having a state. Like, you know, writing for the new Freie Presse, writing in Paris, trying to make it big in in Europe and all of these different venues, journalism, theater, and then Dreyfus Affair, curtain down, blackout, end of act one. And then he moves back to Vienna and there's trouble in Vienna because Karl Luger is now the mayor and, you know, nationalism is making the Jews feel like their place is being questioned. Blackout, curtain down, act two. Act three, Der Judenstadt is published and the Zionist Congress the first Zionist Congress in Basel. And I went to Basel two years ago to kind of see it and take that iconic picture looking over. He was very, very aware of how theatrical the event needed to be. The first official political Congress of the Jews since their expulsion and dissolution from Rome or from Judea by Rome rather. Uh, And so he needed everyone to dress to the nines. He sent Max Nordau to go change because he wasn't dressed well enough and Max Nordau put up a fight, but then, you know, he realized that Herzl was serious. He needed the grand casino, not the the beer hall that they had originally planned for it to be. Uh, they needed a flag. They needed an anthem, even though they didn't have Hatikva yet. They needed music, rather. They needed uh, drama, a lot of it. Uh, and in Altnoyland, it's like this futuristic utopia that is meant to excite the Jews of the East, of Russia and Ukraine, because he realized that Der Judenstadt was good for raising the eyebrows of the Western Jews in Paris and Berlin, but he needed something spiritual. He needed something that pulled on the heartstrings in order to get the masses on board. That's why he wrote out Neuland. So he was very aware of the power of the arts. Uh, and again, I don't think that this any of this would have been possible if he wasn't a playwright an aspiring playwright. He knew the dramatic structure very well. Can you believe it? We're, we've approached the last segment. <gasps> Already? Oh my God. I, I, feel I like... know. Can we maybe ask for an extension of time, Mr. Door? Or maybe I just respond to things with less words so that we can do, we can actually talk about more stuff. <laughs> yeah, but like, what is more mean, you know, Blake? Yeah, I just don't want to repeat myself because I feel like when these in these responses, I've been repeating myself a little bit. So I don't maybe. think you've been repeating yourself oh, okay. at all. Good. I loved the setup of the ah, uh, just all of it. The <laughs> curtain down. It, it it transported me for a second to that movie Amadeus. Have you ever seen of Amadeus? Of course I've seen Amadeus. Are you kidding me? What a film. It's so yeah. like, da, da, Grazie, da, signora. Da. Yeah. When my hearing was gone last week, we, we talked about health and oh, I shared one, one of my like least that, favorite topics. That like ear, crazy freak ear infection thing I had where I lost my hearing. And that point in time, it was like my hearing wasn't really back. It was like a whole month. 
And I found myself one day at home listening to classical music and it was some like Spotify playlist or whatever based on one of my likes. And then at one point I was like, yo, I don't know what's been playing like the last like 20 minutes, but this shit's like fire. And it was like back to back to back some Beethoven. Ooh. And it's like, and I was like, yo, I get this guy now, you know, like I couldn't really hear. And then I like really like connected with Beethoven. It was like, yeah. and you know, Beethoven couldn't hear when he was composing a lot of that stuff. So I was like, yo, I get it now. Like I felt it inside. Classical music is, I listen to classical music when I work. One, because I'm a pretentious asshole. And two, because it actually helps your brain waves concentrate better. It objectively, like evidence-backed, makes you calmer, makes you more aware of your surroundings and makes you more fixated on what's in front of you. I don't know the exact science, but I know that that's true. And also like you get to feel like a 19th century intellectual when you're doing your work. That's all I've ever wanted. Do you have a playlist? Yeah, but it's not good. It's a lot of klezmer. And not good klezmer either, because good klezmer tends to be anti-Zionist. It's very hard to find like modern klezmer that is like okay with Israel. Uh, but I'll send you some stuff. That would be really great. And then I'd love to share it with our listeners. Yeah. When I, I know that it might seem like a jump, but I don't think so. When you really feel your present, you know, like writing from that space where you feel calmer, I, it makes me, and, and you share it, it makes me really happy because I really love some of the stuff you're saying about the future of the Zionist left. And if it's coming from a present that feels so good and balanced, it, it kind of gives me, it, it's like reassurance that I have, you know, kind of that I'm in with your team. You know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? Like I believe in the, the ingredients. It makes a good cake kind of thing. I have made an effort to listen to people since October 7th whose heads are on straight. That's very important. People who are not optimistic about the future, but not pessimistic either, who are not, you know, proposing these grand solutions as to what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Meaning, I don't listen to people who say, oh, if October 7th proved anything, it's that we have to end the occupation and we need a completely restructured army and we need to think of a completely different concepcia of how the conflict can be managed and solved. I also don't listen to people, of course, on the right who say, ah, we need to learn from this, that we need to resettle Gaza. We need to be even more brutal what we do east of the Green Line and even up the amount of settlers there and also within Gaza, which I think is just a complete fallacy and completely ridiculous and is the messianic ideology that got us into this mess in the first place. So people who are in the middle who say some things went wrong, we have evidence now that the way that we were doing things was quite stupid, here are the practical, logical, common sense decisions that we can take that would make life better for everyone. Those are the people who I've been listening to. And they include Dr. Anat Wilf, who I work with and I have a podcast with, We Should All Be Zionists. Uh, they include Shani Moore, who is one of the most stellar academics in Israel at the moment. And they include People like Yossi Klein-Halevi, who people know of, of course. They include Mati Friedman, who, of course, wrote a tremendous book about Leonard Cohen in the Sinai last year. Uh, and I'll send you a list if you want to know more. <laughs> We'd love to share that with our listeners, too, mm -hmm. if that's okay with you. Absolutely. I, I'm afraid we're running close to the end of our time today. Rats. 
And there's so many more things that I wish we could get into, but it would be great for our listeners to check out your Substack, where you've written about a lot of those things that I wanted to get into with you anyway. So this is just like a bonus, like go yeah. over there, check out the Substack, yeah. catch up on that. Maybe we'll see Blake again on ERC, depending on how long we go into the future together. And oh, the future's scary. Is it? Is that how you feel about the future? The future is blank. Go, Blake. Scary, but inevitable. And I don't know. I'm not like, listen, I've been like, I've been reading a lot of philosophy or attempting to read a lot of philosophy. A lot of philosophers are very difficult to understand. Nietzsche, Freud, who else? Hegel, who's the most impossible to understand. And I'm realizing that all of these emotions that we've been feeling, fear, hope, pessimism, angst, anger, anger is a big one. There's comfort in people, in reading people who have also grappled with these emotions uh, hundreds of years ago because nothing new is under the sun. And I find comfort in that. I find this to be really comforting too. Like um, history always repeats itself. I said in one of the earlier episodes, yeah, I said something like... And if it doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. You oh, know? I don't know that one. Yeah, that's... Oh, God, I'm going to sound like such an idiot not knowing who said that. But someone did say that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Maybe it was Oscar Wilde. Interesting. And it's true. It's like history doesn't repeat itself in the exact same way that it happened. Right. But there are always similarities. History repeats itself and that there's some comfort in knowing that. And then if I like dig into history, like back then I was reading... Where We Are Brothers Keepers by mm -hmm. Rabbi Luckstein mm -hmm. about like American Jewish responses to the Holocaust in real time mm -hmm. and like after. It's depressing. And then I said, like, if you go back into history, like you can really start kind of looking forward to your present. Like in a sense, I feel like people that are really tuned into the present are like other people's future prophets. You know what I mean? Because if most people are like so stuck in their past and you're just like, a person that's in their present and in mm -hmm. the present or whatever, it's almost like you're seeing into the future for most of the global population that's still like trapped in the past or not really engaged with the present. Yeah. And also people are just really stupid. Like most <laughs> people are really stupid. I don't know if you know this, but like the ignorance. Yeah. Like there's that thing. It's not like, just ignorance. People it's are like, malice. are we going to win on social media? I'm like two years ago, half the kids on TikTok America were like eating Tide Pods. So like, we're going to convert their minds and like understanding about like complex geopolitics. Yeah. I, I fear not. You know, And it's not elitist. I feel like, and this is a really big problem we have with Israel advocacy today. And I call it boomer Hasbara because that's what it is. We have this problem of anti-intellectualism in Israel advocacy. Meaning, oh, we accept that people are stupid, which I just said is true. Majority of people don't have attention spans. They don't want to read anything. They don't want to look at anything. They don't want to listen to anything longer than five minutes. They want very simple information. And that's where the market is right now in the Jewish community for defending Israel. Uh, it's not going to work. The real work is strengthening ideas and strengthening action within the circles of smart people who know about the past, who know about the present and have a vision of the future. They're the decision makers. They're the people who are power brokers and the masses are going to do what the masses are going to do. One look at Jewish history will tell us that that is an uphill battle that we have never been able to win over, to clinch victory from the jaws of. The only thing that matters is that we have an army to defend ourselves and that we have a, a state 
where we can practice the right of self-determination, govern ourselves, and bicker about what it means to be a Jew. We have a shtetl with an army, period. That's good enough. Now we need to focus on who's going to lead that shtetl. And those are the conversations I'm interested in. Not repeating the same taglines over and over and over again. Hamas would push you off a building, you know, if you're gay. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Jews are indigenous to Judea. Give me a break. Let's talk about more interesting things. <laughs> Let's talk about more interesting things. Thank you so much for joining us today, Blake. Thank you so much for having me. You got me out of the house. And thank you, listener, for joining us today. If this is your first time listening to October 7th Emotionally Raw coverage, well, a few things. Thank you. And also, you can check out some other episodes maybe while you're here. Episode zero, kind of a disclaimer. Episode 21, kind of like a carefully curated selection of the first month, which was really, really raw. I mean, we did meet for the first time on October 7th and start recording that night. Episode 32 on, that was season two, featuring long, nice conversations with people who work in different industries and have expertise in different fields of getting into many topics from Captagon, the synthetic methamphetamine that the Hamas terrorists were taking, to the harrowing silence of feminist organizations abroad, including UN women's shameful response to the atrocities conducted and still being conducted as there are still hostages in Gaza on this 137th day since <sighs> the war began. Anyway, there's a lot more there to check out. We have a Patreon account if you'd like to consider supporting us, a YouTube channel, a Gmail account if you'd like to shoot us an email. You can, you know, say hi. We'd love to hear from you. And we're kind of active over on Instagram. The handles for everything are October 7th, the podcast, and there's links in the show notes. And I'd also like to thank Shema Podcast Team, your home for podcasts, Jonathan Gall, Maya Schlesinger, my wonderful partner in creation, Dor Comet. I'm Amy Sapan. Stay safe and stay tuned. And stay sexy. Stay sexy.